Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Heather. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And I want to remind you about our very special tours to the UK. In 2017, we'll be doing tours focusing on the Evensong experience. The Evensong service comes from Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer from the mid-16th century. It's been dubbed the atheist's favorite service because it requires so little and it gives so much. It's simply divine choral music sung in some of the most historic chapels, abbeys, and cathedrals in England. We'll be spending 10 days visiting places like Cambridge, Oxford, Bath, the Cotswolds, Winchester and Windsor with walking tours, free time to explore, and then gathering back each afternoon for the Evensong service if you choose to attend. It will be 10 days of beautiful countryside, historic cities and villages, and so, so much music. I invite you to go to englandcast.com tours for full itinerary and pricing information. Again, englandcast, E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T, englandcast.com slash tours. Thanks so much. And now to the show. Welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. Just a few reminders as we get started. First, if you like this podcast, please rate it in whatever service you use to listen to it, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or something else. It's important because it helps other people find the podcast 
and decide if it's something that they want to listen to. Second, there are now show notes available for each episode up at www.englandcast.com. So again, go to www.englandcast.com to get the show notes. And also I'm having a giveaway of the book that I used for this episode. So you should go there to enter as well. And it's called The Wheeled and Iron Industry by Jeremy Hodgkinson. It's a really fascinating book. And uh, so yeah, go to englandcast.com for show notes and to enter the giveaway for the book. And finally, last bit of admin, you can now call or text the listener feedback line, which is 801-6-TESCO or 801-683-9756. You can use that to leave feedback, show ideas, nice thoughts, anything like that, that you'd like to leave holiday greetings. You could sing a Christmas carol. That would be fun. So yeah, anything like that. On to the iron industry of Kent and Sussex. So one of the main reasons that I find the 16th century so fascinating is because we see this theme, this movement towards becoming a more modern society. So if most of us had been dropped in England in 1483, we would have had a really difficult time surviving, I think. It just wasn't the England that we know now. It looked not really that much like our England. It was a, a very different medieval society. But if you, if you fast forwarded your time machine to, say, 120 years later, and if you put us down in 1603, I think that we would have had a much easier time of it. Now, of course, many of us would probably still wind up being burned as heretics, and I'm pretty sure that I would have been declared a witch. Still, this was an England that would have looked much more familiar to us. There were books, for example, pamphlets, Shakespeare. Society was becoming more secular in a way, and people were beginning to question the divine right of monarchs. An anointed queen, Anne Boleyn, had been executed, an anointed queen executed for the first time in British history. And the religious institutions that had predated even the conquest had been dissolved. And all of these changes were leading to people becoming much more questioning of the monarch and the idea of divine right. And of course, if you gave it another 120 years through the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution, we would really feel much more at home landing in England in, say, 1723. But still, in 1603, we would have recognized England. And I find that change over the course of three generations between Henry VII, Henry VIII, and then his children, Edward, Mary, and Elizabeth, to be one of the most fascinating times in history. And it's the reason why I love this period. And the changing economy from one that's being largely based in agriculture to this tiny little minuscule growth of industry, the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, the iron that formed the cannon that defeated the Spanish Armada is a really big part of that move to modernization. So that's why I really find the iron industry <laughs> as it is in Kent really interesting and why I want to talk about it. So let's talk about it. Iron ore deposits are found in the Weald of Sussex, and it's an area between the North and South Downs. It actually crosses through Sussex, Hampshire, Kent, and Surrey. And the area was once covered in this large forest that in the Middle Ages was actually the home of bandits and highwaymen. 
If you look out over the countryside now in, in Sussex, you won't see this thick, dense forest anymore because the forest was used for charcoal that powered the forges and the furnaces, and the forest largely disappeared. So Romans had introduced mining and smelting the iron ore, and it had been happening for centuries. Julius Caesar mentions it. It had been going on for a long, long time. The work was really long and really arduous. Actually, up in the show notes, I have a link to a video that shows how it would have been done in the kind of ancient times. It involved having the charcoal and the iron ore smoldering for days before anyone could recover any iron that could then be beaten into shape. There was iron making in the Weald in Saxon times. The Domesday Book, if you don't know what the Domesday Book is, it's the book that William the Conqueror actually commissioned to inventory everything in England. He wanted to know kind of what he conquered. And so he sent out people to go around to every village, every town, and write down what was going on there and the people who lived there and the money and the houses. And it's an amazing book because we still have it. It's this snapshot of life just post-conquest. It's, it's amazing. But the Domesday Book mentions iron ore and, and forging once in Sussex at a location near East Grinstead. And in the Middle Ages, the production of iron grew, but it wasn't until the late 15th century when water power began to be used for forging iron and the introduction of the blast furnace. This new technology came from France, and it allowed iron to be heated hot enough to be turned into liquid and then cast into shapes, kind of like a mold, right? The technology, like I said, came from France, and it was operated by skilled immigrant workers. And a blast furnace was a much larger and more permanent structure. And instead of just a few kilos being made, you can have closer to a ton. But more ore and charcoal were, were required. And also there was a need to operate the bellows by water power instead of by hand. And that meant that ponds had to be created to store the water. And in addition, the higher temperatures in the furnace meant that a different kind of iron was actually being produced. And a second process, the forge, with its own pond and supply of charcoal, was needed to refine the iron because cast iron was brittle. It needed remelting and hammering at a finery forge to convert it into wrought iron that we know that's really highly durable. And so forges used water wheels to power the bellows to remelt the iron at a high temperature. And also the water wheels were used to turn these huge mechanical hammers to pound the iron into these sh really short, thick bars. And the hammer was attached to the water wheel. It could pound the iron up to 60 blows per minute. So once a second, it was really an amazing piece of technology for the time. The first blast furnace in the Weald and probably in Britain was operating by the end of 1490 in Buxted in Sussex. The furnace and the forge at Queenstock were being worked on the Archbishop of Canterbury's lands. And six years later, there was another blast furnace built thanks to a commission by Henry VII at Newbridge. And it was built because of a potential war with Scotland that was going to require production of gun carriages. So just like now, it's really often military that drives a lot of these sorts of inventions and a lot of these, these new types of technologies that are driven by the need for defense or offense. And 
I'm not really going to make much of a commentary on that. You can draw your own conclusions, but it's interesting to note. So the skilled work was largely carried out by immigrant iron workers from France and from Belgium. And during the first 40 years of the 16th century, there was this huge migration of founders, finers, and hammermen. They came to England in part because of the rising price of wood and a lack of investment in the iron industry by the government of France. Both Henry VII and his son were investing heavily in all things related to the military, like I talked about in the last episode on Henry's Navy. And so these immigrant iron workers were found easy employment. And before long, most communities in the Weald had some kind of French families. First generation immigration reached its peak in the 1520s. So now you have this influx of new kinds of people coming, right? New new types of languages and food being spoken. You, know, you really start to, to see an intermingling of, of culture that you hadn't seen before, and that was driven by technology. So to be allowed to live in England, the immigrants had to prove that they were working for an English employer. And really interestingly, lists of workers were created showing where each worker was employed, where they had come from, and when they arrived in England. And we still have a lot of those lists. So that's why we know so much about these immigrants. And you can see them at archives throughout Sussex and Surrey. In the 1530s, England, of course, separated from the Catholic Church, as we know, and began to dissolve the monasteries. This led to a renewed threat of war with France and the other countries loyal to the Pope. And England needed to be able to react defensively very quickly. Bronze had been the material of choice for creating weaponry up until that point, but it was really expensive. And iron guns made with the old technology were also very expensive. So everyone's eyes turned to the new cast iron technology in Sussex. So there was this guy, William Levitt. He was the rector of Buxted. He was the deputy receiver of the King's revenues in Sussex. And he had taken over the furnaces and forges that his late brother, John, had operated. Levitt brought together a local iron founder, Ralph Hogg, and Peter Bald, a French founder of bronze guns. And between them, they came together to produce a complete cast iron cannon at Buxted in 1543. So this was pretty impressive. And soon the production began in earnest, and Levitt was appointed the king's gunstone maker. More founders began to enter the trade and make profits. It was a bit of a gold rush. Levitt himself expanded to meet the demand, and he was soon in another location in Worth Forest casting guns at a double furnace. By 1548, there were 50 furnaces and forges working in the wield, though making guns was actually a small minority of their work at first. Some of the other products that they created in this industry were iron firebacks to protect, protect brickwork in the newly built chimneys that new houses had built into them. And people also created iron memorials. For example, Waters Church has over 30 iron memorials that date from the early 17th century to the late 18th century. And I have a link to that in the show notes too. It's really interesting. When the monasteries were dissolved, the forges and furnaces capitalized on the available land. 
For example, when Robert's Bridge Abbey was dissolved in 1538, Sir William Sidney purchased the site of the abbey and opened a forge. Within two years, work began on a furnace and the forge, and in 1542, the vicar of Penhurst sold land for a second furnace, eight miles away. The demand for fuel had driven this acquisition, and all throughout the area, the iron industry was affecting life for large numbers of people who were suddenly employed digging the ore, cutting the wood, and transporting both the raw materials to the site and the finished products to market or to the ports. The need for wood for charcoal was a key part of this industry. Charcoal was the fuel that kept all the forges lit. As the use of the blast furnace spread, people were starting to become afraid that the weald would lose all of its forest and that other trades would suffer. The clothing trade in particular was really anti-furnaces. They were really worried it was going to affect their trade. The old style of furnace, the bloomeries, had used at most about 10 tons of wood per year. The blast furnace increased charcoal consumption by as much as a hundred times for each ironworks. And as more and more furnaces were opened, large areas of the forest were cut down. At the time, there were these writers who were lamenting the loss of the forest. And some of the furnaces burned as much as a ton of charcoal each day. And so full-grown trees were being cut down. It wasn't just undergrowth. They were cutting down full-grown trees Competition for the woodland area was intense, and it was often seen as unfair. In 1548, the authorities in coastal towns petitioned the king to end the deforestation, and a commission was set up to look at the complaints. The complaints included the ironworks were taking the wood needed for Calais for fuel, and that there was no longer sufficient wood for building or making household items, and also that a few, a few really wealthy furnace owners were benefiting to the great detriment of many thousands who weren't even born yet, who would suffer because of the lack of wood, because there wasn't enough wood to make houses and household items. So people were really upset about it. And in 1559, Parliament responded with an act that restricted setting up new ironworks within 14 miles of the sea except in Sussex, the Weald of Kent, and some parishes in Surrey. But the ironmasters themselves, they were affected by the shortage of wood, and they had to try to figure out ways around it as well. And a later act of parliament renewed the restriction of the expansion in Kent and Surrey. And it also pointed out an example of a best practice that it encouraged everyone to follow. So there was this fellow called Christopher Darrell. He was an ironmaster in Kent, he operated a furnace in Surrey, though, and he was mentioned in the act. He was exempted from its restrictions because of the way that he had introduced coppicing. He managed the woodland so wonderfully that had supplied his ironworks. So coppicing was cutting down the trees to their base and then allowing them to regrow in several separate shoots. And it provided a long-term sort of sustainable supply of this wood that was so needed. In the late 16th century, when there were about 100 furnaces and forges in the Weald, about a quarter of the land area within a three-mile radius of the furnace and forge needed to be coppiced. The supply of charcoal became the most expensive part of making the iron because of how labor-intensive the work was. 
Most furnace and forge owners had to make agreements with other landowners nearby so that they could make sure they had enough wood to supply their own operations. And people were constantly competing for who had access to this woodland and that woodland. A whole new type of entrepreneur emerged out of this industry. The previously mentioned Ralph Hogg, who had made the first cast iron gun in uh, 1543, he had been listed as a servant in the will of William Levitt. He was left in the will 10 pounds and a certain amount of iron. It wasn't a lot. He was probably Levitt's assistant at Buxted, and he succeeded Levitt in running the furnace. And in 1559, he was appointed the Queen's gunstone maker for life. He set up two new furnaces with his profits, which he ran along with the Buxted one. After 1568, he had a license to sell guns that were not required by the government. He sold his these guns through a man he knew in Lewis, and then he also went on to hold a post at the Tower of London. With all of these profits, he built a house in Buxted, which still bears his name Hog House. And in the wall, there was set an iron plate that was cast with a hog. And I put a link up to that on the website as well. It still exists. Um, it's really interesting. And it has the little date and everything like that. So the increasing tension between England and Spain in the reign of Elizabeth meant big profits for the wield. There were large sales of weaponry in the lead up to the Armada threat. And after that threat died down, the government also tried to make sure that weaponry wasn't being exported to potentially hostile countries. So they made lists of all of the different furnaces and who the different furnaces were selling to. And so we have a lot of really complete information about the people during this time, how much money they were making, what their output was. From all of that, we know that at this high point, there were a hundred furnaces and forges in this part of England. Over time, the profits drove others to create forges and furnaces in other parts of England. And soon enough, there was competition from other counties as well. And eventually, the Industrial Revolution took heavy industry up to the coal fields in the north of England. The last furnace in the Weald at Ashburnham closed in 1813. And all of the works were dismantled so that the stone could still be used for building materials and in some cases, the forest actually grew back over the former sites. We still can see evidence of the sites, though, from their waste. The waste from the smelting process called slag is what's left of this iron industry of the Weald, which was once such a thriving industry and was really the nascent start kind of of England's first foray into industrialization. It's so interesting. So I'm doing something new this week. The book recommendation is The Wheeled and Iron Industry by Jeremy Hodgkinson. And if you go to the website, like I said, there's a contest where you can enter to win my copy of it. So it's the copy that I took notes in and stuff. And I'll send it to you if you win. It's still in good condition. It's not really folded or anything like that. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, so there's a giveaway for that. That'll be up for a week. So you can go on and sign up for that. And also I'll put a link to the book recommendation on the site and on the Facebook page. Again, the Facebook page is facebook.com slash Englandcast, facebook.com slash Englandcast. And you can go there to contact me, to send me show ideas, or just say nice things and say Merry Christmas. 
And again, you can get all of the book recommendations, the show notes, sign up for the mailing list, everything like that at http colon slash slash www.englandcast.com. Again, englandcast.com. I've also started doing little mini, mini casts that I'm going to do for the newsletter subscribers. So I've already recorded the first one and that'll be going out later this week to newsletter subscribers. And they're just quick little five minute bits of history that I'm sending out to everybody who, who signs up for the England cast newsletter. So go on there and sign up for that. You can also follow me on YouTube. I do the tutor minute on YouTube. So there's links to all of that on the website and on the Facebook page. So thank you so much for your listenership and your support. The episode, the next episode in two weeks, I'm going to move away from all of this heavy warfare, weaponry, industrialization, and go back to something artistic. So we're going to talk about art in Tudor England. I did an episode on art several years ago, but it wasn't very long. So we're going to do an episode, a more complete episode on art in Tudor England in about two weeks. So... Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're having a fantastic holiday season. I'll be talking to you again after Christmas. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.